Good morning, everyone. Boker Tov. Good to have you with me this morning. Baruch Hashem. Good to be with you from wherever you are, watching locally or even internationally. Baruch Hashem. What a joy to have everyone with us today on this wonderful fourth day of the week. We are in the fourth Aliyah of our parasha, parasha Vayetze. We're going to be in the book of uh, Genesis, chapter 30. The uh, fourth reading begins in chapter 30 and verse 14. So lots of wonderful things to share this morning. And Baruch Hashem, hope you're having a blessed morning so far. And if you are not having such a blessed morning, don't worry, it's going to get better. Don't worry about it. Baruch Hashem. All right, so I want to share something with you that uh, I actually... Uh, did not did not have a chance to get to yesterday. Um, so this uh, comes from uh, yesterday's Aliyah. And uh, chapter 30, in verse 1, it says, Vatakeni Rachel Ba'achota. So Rachel became envious of her sister, Vatakani. It says, Jealousy is as cruel as the grave from Song of Songs 8.6. And spares neither the greatest nor the saintliest of men. Now, as I read this, I want you to remember that when uh, Yeshua was in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, remember that he prayed that his father should remove from him this cup. But nevertheless, he said, your will be done. So what we need to derive uh, as we're looking at the life of Yeshua, because remember, he is the the second and final Akedah. He's the second and final lamb of the day. That's why there were two lambs uh, that were sacrificed in the tabernacle. It's why there were two lambs sacrificed in the uh, uh, in the temple. There is one in the morning, one in the evening, and the Mashiach is the evening lamb. But anyway, so there we see correlations between the two. That's what I'm trying to get to as well, because as I study the Torah. Uh, the correlations between Mashiach and uh, the Akedah, for instance, become readily available. Uh, Baruch Hashem. Yeah, Shana, Shalom to you in Tulsa as well. I'll be heading to Tulsa later. Looking forward to see all of our HCO friends there in Tulsa. So it says here, So did the patriarch Isaac. When Isaac, talking about jealousy, okay? When Isaac arrived at Mount Moriah for the supreme sacrifice, it says here, Hasatan, cursed be he, came and whispered in his ear, All the finery your mother made for you will go to Ishmael, who is rejected in your house. Now, that's the last phrase is what's important because Isaac was jealous, not because hey, all my stuff is going to go to Ishmael. He's going to get all my uh, my menorahs. He's going to get all my suits. He's going to get all my uh, all my kiddush cup. No, that's not what he's talking about. He said he's rejected in your house. So Isaac is jealous for the covenant. He's jealous for the sake of Hashem. Okay. So it says Isaac hereunto unshakable became jealous and cried out. So up to this point, Isaac is he's he's resolved in his uh, going to he's going to the uh, to the Akedah to be sacrificed. He's resolved about it. There isn't an issue, right? Just like Mashiach said boldly to his Talmudim, "I go to Jerusalem to be offered up." 
look, this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man, etc., etc., etc. And so Isaac has the same, it's the same spirit, right? But then all of a sudden he gets jealous. Why does he get jealous? Because the Hasatan curse be he is saying to him, hey, listen, when you die, all uh, because you're dying, uh, your mission is failing, and therefore everything is going to go to the son that the, is rejected. So it says, so I want you to see this picture, and we're not going to, I'm going to try not to belabor this, but I just want you to see this picture. So here is Isaac, he's on Mount Moriah, Hasatan, cursed be he, whispers into his ear, right before he's to be sacrificed, and this is what he cries out, my father, my father, have pity on me. This is from Midrash Rabbah. So you can see the correlation, I hope, where Yeshua cries out and says, take this cup from me, nevertheless... Your will be done, not my will be done. So, again, just enough something I want to point out to you uh, with respect to um, the Akidah and Mashiach Yeshua. Very, very important that we see those types, right? We have to base everything on Torah. Every, the, the, what the Mashiach did has to be based on Torah. It can't be based on uh, anything else. can't be based on, God forbid, Greek thought or Western thought or what have you. So, we look here at the Parashah, the Aliyah, the fourth Aliyah, Revi'i, in verse 14. So, all the wives are starting to have children. Rachel's uh, uh, maidservant has had a child for her namesake, but she herself has not had a child. So, we have in verse 14, Reuben went out in the days of the wheat harvest. He found Dudaim in the field and brought them to Leah his mother. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your sons Dudaim. Now, first first thing that we have to notice here, the sages want us to pay attention to, uh, that he went out during the wheat harvest. Why does it say wheat harvest? What does it matter when he went out? He could have gone out uh, at any time and picked a wild Dudaim. And the answer to this question is, the Torah wants to illustrate for us that the sons of Yaakov were so conscious not to steal. So going out into the uh, field and taking wild dudaim that don't belong to anyone is perfectly fine. But the Torah is trying to tell us this happened during the wheat harvest. In other words, it's saying Reuben did not go out and take wheat. He left the wheat. Why? Because it didn't belong to him. So this is actually concealed within the Torah, an ethical teaching for, to us to be hyper-conscious that we don't steal or take anything that is not ours, Moreover, the Torah also teaches that not only uh, are we not supposed to take that which is not ours, but if we find something that is not ours, it is our responsibility to make every effort to return it to its proper owner. This is akin to what Yeshua was saying when he said, what you would have someone do to you, do to them. In other words, it's not okay to be, to, and this is a Jewish concept uh, in general, it's not okay to cease from doing evil, we must strive to do good. So we not only do we not steal, but we also uh, make an effort to return. So <clears throat> it says here, uh, the second part is, is it, uh, first of all, what are Dudaim? Let's look at uh, Sanhedrin 99b, because the answer is we don't really know. But there are uh, three opinions. According to one opinion, Dudaim are... Uh, commonly referred to or translated as mandrakes. That's probably the most common that I've seen anyway in the translations. That's the most common interpretation. 
According to a second opinion, they are Sigle, they are Jasmine Rice. So uh, apparently, I love Jasmine Rice. I love rice in general, my wife will tell you. I'm a riceaholic. And so um, uh, one of my favorite rice that we eat, in fact, it's the rice we have 99.9% .9 of the time, is Jasmine Rice. So obviously, Jasmine Rice is Jewish. So there you go. Baruch Hashem. So it says, according to the third opinion, they are a type of spice. Uh, so it could be a type of spice. It could be jasmine. It could be a, do, uh, a mandrake. Excuse me. So what's the point? What do the sages say about this uh, particular uh, plant? Why was Reuven? Uh, was he wanted to just pick his mother flowers? No. Um, that basically what it amounts to is that Reuven, even at this young age, knew that his mother wanted to have another child. Remember, these uh, matriarchs are, are prophetesses. And they know through the Ruach HaKodesh that Yaakov is going to have 12 sons. And they want to have as many of those sons as possible. And Leah, of course, because she's kind of the spurned wife, she wants to, uh, she wants to have the, the, the lion's share. And Reuven cares so much for his mom, his Ema, that he, uh, instead of doing what normal boys do, which is go out and play and focus on themselves, he's out looking for a solution for his mother. And so one of the ancient ideas is that this particular plant, this dudaim, uh, is, uh, is, is medicinal. That it's a type of maybe aphrodisiac, or perhaps uh, some say it could have been like a, a, a nice fragrance, would, it, would attract a man to you or what have you. Or that uh, more, most probably it was believed to have some type of fertility properties which makes sense in the next exchange we're about to see. So, it says in verse 15, but she said to her, so Rachel walks up and says to Rachel, please give me some of your sons dudaim. Not all of them, but some of them. Why? Because Rachel wanted to have a baby too. So she sees uh, that, uh, that, that he has these plants, they have fertility properties, and so uh, she wants to uh, have some of them. Now, Hidden in this, the sages talk about the fact that there's obviously a rivalry here, which is why men should not have two wives or three wives or, God forbid, more wives than that, is because it creates a rivalry. And, and this is one of the reasons why the Torah forbids marrying sisters because of this type of thing. So Rachel and Leah have a rivalry. And kind of uh, hidden in this is a little bit of smugness by Rachel. And the sages bring down that uh, the backstory is that Leah is, is saying to her sister, look, you treat me like a maidservant, and you should know that I'm the first wife, right? Before I, before uh, you was me. So in, instead of treating me like a maidservant, why don't you treat me like your uh, senior wife, so to speak? And she's, the, so the idea is Leah, uh, Rachel has this kind of air of, hey, give me some of that. Um, and Leah's like, look, what I have doesn't necessarily belong to you. So there's a rivalry going on here. Verse 15, but she said to her, was your taking my husband insignificant? So again, the backstory here, if you read through the commentary in the art scroll, Humash and others, uh, kind of the backstory here is, is again, she's, she's making the argument that, look, according to the Torah law, you shouldn't have married him once I married him because you're my sister. So again, there's a concept here of Torah has always been and Torah will always be. And that's something we have to realize. The sages, the, ma uh, the matriarchs, not the sages, I meant the patriarchs. The patriarchs and the matriarchs, they all follow the Torah. So the idea that the Torah came and then it went is 
100% foreign to Jewish thought, which is why Yeshua said, don't even think that that's going to be the case. Don't even think, we're not even allowed to think it. So, by the way, why are we not allowed to think it? Because everything that has been made has been made with Torah. That includes our thoughts. Think about that for a second. Because uh, our thoughts are a part of creation. And everything that has been made has been made with Torah. It's, it's really uh, pretty deep. So it says there, but she said to her, was you're taking my husband insignificant and now to take even my son's dudaim? Rachel said, therefore, he shall lie with you tonight and return for your son's dudaim. Now the sages take Rachel to task a little bit on this because she, uh, on the one hand, she's, she has a motive in mind. She wants to do dudaim because she's trying to get fertile. However, the sages say that, uh, that giving birth to children is in the hands of Hashem. In fact, there is a statement here. Let's see if I can find it right quick, because it's pretty telling. Uh, where is that? Where is that? Where is that? I just saw earlier, it's one of the sources here, that it says that there are three keys in the hand of Hashem. I have to find that here. I want to give you the exact source, but suddenly it escapes me. I apologize. But there is a source that says, ah, yes, Baruch Hashem, here it is. This is from Tana, Tananis 2a, from the Talmud. It says, there are three things that Hashem does directly without the use of an intermediary. In other words, before this it says that Hashem uses agents, agents to accomplish His will. He uses angels. So angels, He sends the angels out with a mission. The angels... Uh, uh, you know, keep the mission or whatever. But there are three things that Hashem does all by Himself. He does not entrust them to an intermediary, to an angel. So, these are the three things. Well, number one, He Himself holds the keys of rain. Number two, He Himself holds the keys of childbirth. And number three, He Himself holds the keys of the resurrection of the dead. So, when Yeshua says, I am the resurrection and the life, that he is making a declaration that he is like Yosef. If you've seen him, you've seen Pharaoh. So, the, the uh, sages take Rachel to task here a little bit because on the one hand, she's doing something godly because she's trying to have a child and she wants to be included and one of the, the the matriarchs who give birth to the one of the to the tribes, but she's also failing to realize, and on, on one level, that Hashem is the one who brings children, and so she treats the evening with her husband in a bit of contempt. This is again, I'm just talking to you here from what's brought down from the sources that evidently, uh, you that Yaakov, excuse me, yes, Yaakov would actually. Um, alternate, because the wives had two separate tents, that he would alternate between one wife and the other wife. And ev evidently, this was Rachel's night. This was her turn. But she kind of shrugged it off, like, it's no big deal. I'd rather have the Dudaim here. You can have my husband for the night. And because of that, the sages say that's one of the reasons why she's not buried with Yaakov for all time. Because, you say, one might say, and rightfully so, that seems a bit harsh. But you have to understand that these are matriarchs. And so the higher up you go, the higher up one goes on the, the proverbial ladder of spirituality, 
the more stringent uh, that person is held to account. And, and therefore, the lapses are not as easily overlooked, which is one of the reasons why the Apostle Shaul, in his letter to, to, uh, to Timothy, I believe, was talking about that not everybody should, should uh, want to be a teacher, right? That, that you should be careful about that. Because it comes with a higher uh, degree of accountability and responsibility. And so uh, it's just something to be cautious about. So we continue reading and it says, When Yaakov came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and, and, and said, It is to me that you must come, for I have clearly hired you with my sons, Dudaim. Poor Yaakov. I mean, I just can't imagine the level of uh, of just strife that he must have endured. You know, he's coming in from the field, hard day's work. He's been out there, uh, you know, working away, and here he comes home, and there's strife in the house, and now he's been hired. That's just wonderful. So it says, So he lays with her that night, and God hearkened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Yaakov a fifth son. And Leah declared, God has granted me my reward because my maidservant... Uh, my reward because I gave my maidservant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will make his permanent home with me, for I have borne him six sons. So he called, she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and she called her name Dina. Now, there's a really beautiful uh, insight on Dina. And, um, let's see if I can find it here. So basically, yes, here it is. So we've talked, uh, I just got these talking about the strife and the contention between the two wives and the two sisters, but not everything is bleak. There's uh, strife, contention, but there's also a lot of love. And so the story about Dina is really remarkable story as it's, recounted uh, by Rashi and by others, but this is actually coming from uh, Barakot 60a. This is also from the Talmud, Barakot 60a. And it says, why does the Pasuk say, well, let me just read it in in Ivrit. It says, V'achar yada bat v'tikra et shemo dina. Why does the Pasuk, what does the Pasuk, the the verse, what does the Pasuk mean, Ve'achar, afterward? After what was Dina born? After what? The answer is, it says, that Dina was born after Leah passed judgment, because the Dina is, the the root is Dean, judgment. We say um, in every synagogue there is a Beit Dean, or there should be a Beit Dean, uh, comprised of uh, at least three, um, you know, observant men. Typically, it's the rabbi and the the zakenim, but but it could be. It doesn't have to be a rabbi. It doesn't have to be zakenim. Just be a Torah observant man. They they form a beit din and they handle all uh, issues. It's called a beit din is literally house of judgment. So it says Leah knew that both she and her sister Rachel were expecting. Okay, she said. Yaakov is going to produce 12 Shevatim, 12 tribes. I already have six sons, and each of the two maiden servants have two for a total of 10 sons, so there's already a minion. This means that only two Shevatim have yet to be born. If the child I am now carrying is a boy, Rachel will be the mother of only one Shevat, only one tribe, while the maid servants will have two. 
When Leah concluded this calculation, the child she was carrying miraculously and supernaturally turned into a girl, Dina. From the word Dean, judgment had passed upon herself so Rachel would have a second son. So, this is talked about in other sources to uh, a bit more detail, but the fact of the matter is, is that um, Leah was concerned about, about her sister's honor. She loved Rachel. They, yes, they had strife. Yes, they had contention. Yes, they uh, had a rivalry, but they had genuine love for each other. And Leah loved her. And so she did not want her to be shamed by only having one Shevet, only having one tribe. So what happened was that she was actually pregnant with another son. And when she passed judgment on herself and said that I have, I have enough, I have plenty, my sister, she should have two because the other uh, maidservants have two apiece and it would be not, not be right for Raquel to uh, only have one. Then what happened is that in her womb, supernaturally, Hashem changed the uh, sex of the child from a boy to a girl. And that's how Dina came to be. So it says here, this is a beautiful story. I thought it was very, very uh, sweet. So it says here, um, in verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God hearkened to her and she opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. So she called his name Yosef, saying, May Hashem add for me another son. Taking away my disgrace is very significant because we know that Yosef is going to be the type, the forerunner, the namesake, as it were, of the Messiah ben Yosef, who will, and did, and has, taken away our disgrace. So that uh, is part of his heritage and part of his namesake. But it says here in, uh, uh, well, we'll come to that verse 25 here in a second. Uh, grant me, oh yes, we'll come to that here in just a second. I want to read this to you. This is amazing insight. By the way, the sages bring down that Yosef uh, was born on Rosh Hashanah, that that's when Hashem uh, um, uh, remembered, as it were, um, Rachel, and gave her a son. Um, and it's also the time that Yosef was remembered when he was in the prison. He was brought up from the prison on Rosh Hashanah, okay? And remember, it was that day that he was brought up from the prison of Rosh Hashanah and he was crowned, essentially, king of the world. Because back then, this is brought down by the Midrash Rabbah, back then, Egypt was considered the world, which is why Yosef was called the savior of the world. That all that I just told you is in the Midrash Rabbah. Now, um, this is significant because it teaches us uh, what's going to happen in the ages to come, maybe sooner in our time. When Mashiach is remembered on Rosh Hashanah like Yosef, and he is brought up from the proverbial dungeon. What do I mean by that? It doesn't mean, God forbid, that Yeshua is in Hades or Gehenna, God forbid. What it means is that he sits at the gates of Rome, and he is... Uh, putting bandages on himself because he's calling upon himself all the diseases of Israel. And the gates of Rome are likened to the gates of Gehenna, right? The false religion of Rome, the gates of Gehenna. And so when Mashiach is remembered, it's going to, he's going to be remembered on Rosh Hashanah. He's going to be brought up from the gates of Rome, from, from the gates of Gehenna, and he will be crowned king of the world, just like Yosef. And he will become the ruler, Messiah ben David. Maybe sooner our time. So, 
Beautiful insight here. It's rather lengthy, and I just want to get through as much of it as possible. comes from the Kehot Humash, uh, and it says, With respect to God, may God add another son for me. Okay? It says here, Spiritually, Rachel's prayer encapsulates Joseph's mission in life. Now, again, I just want to emphasize that as we're looking at this in the next few minutes here, remember that Yosef is a type of Mashiach, right? Messiah ben Joseph, all right? Messiah ben Joseph, a type of Mashiach. And so it says here that Rachel's prayer encapsulates Joseph's mission in life. This is, my friends, the mission of Mashiach. And here it is. To turn another, i.e., a seeming stranger, into a son. Now, what's stranger in Hebrew? Ger, a ger. A ger is a, uh, a goy. But this, the sages interpret ger as a proselyte in Torah. Why? Because if you have a ger who is going to get circumcised and keep the covenants, keep the Pesach, for instance... It's impossible that they can get circumcised and they can keep the covenant and remain a Gentile. That's just an impossibility. So the sages say, well, if that's the case, then a ger in the Torah must be talking about a proselyte because you can't be someone who gets circumcised and eats the Pesach and then go back to being a Gentile. That, my friends, can't happen. So it says here that this is actually the mission of Yosef to take the stranger and turn the stranger into a son. And so, without getting too excited, I'm continue reading. It says, the mission is expressed in three ways. First, in making the mundane world, which appears to be separate from God, acknowledge its divine source. So, one way that we accomplish this mission is by living a Torah life. What does a Torah life do? It takes all of the mundane activities and elevates them to a level of holiness. I've said this a thousand times. It's like when we go to the store and we're buying a can of tomatoes and it seems so mundane. We're just buying tomatoes. What's the big deal? But if we're looking for the can that has the hexure on it to make sure they're kosher, we have just taken something mundane and elevated to a status of holiness. And secondly, in personal repentance, through which we transform ourselves from estranged others, quote unquote, into sons. How do we become a son? Through Shuva. So, who, uh, therefore, we belong. <laughs> so, ver- uh, third, in reaching out to those who seem estranged from God, revealing to them that they are God's precious children, from whom living life according to God's plan is simply natural. So the third way in which we accomplish the mission is to reach out to those who are estranged from God and help them to follow God, i.e. become Torah observant, followers of Mashiach. So the three ways is by Torah observance, elevating the mundane, making it holy. Secondly is through Shuva. And third, through uh, outreach, through reaching out to people and helping them to become uh, followers of Hashem, become Jews, uh, to become Lapid Jews specifically. So it says, uh, continuing on, it says, this transformation is alluded to by the fact that the literal other son whom God granted Rachel was first named Ben-Oni, meaning the son of my sorrow, but was afterwards given the more optimistic name Benjamin, the son of the south, meaning the son born in the land of Israel. 
This is why the sages say, by the way, this is uh, just in a, as an addendum, addendum rather. The sages say that a convert is like one who's been born in the land. A convert is literally like a born Jew. There's no difference at all between a born Jew and a convert. Uh, in fact, it's actually taken from the book of uh, Ezekiel, where it refers to a, not, a, a convert as an er, uh, Ezrach, a native tree, which goes back to the grafting in that people are so accustomed to hearing with respect to the Apostle Shaul. He did not invent that concept by any stretch of the imagination. That concept is actually uh, talked about quite plainly in, in uh, I believe it's Tractate Yoma. Um, and certain, most certainly Yevamot. But the point being is that to become grafted in is to become a native tree. So it says here, significantly the name Yosef means addition, does not apply to the transformed other, but to the person who transforms this other. This is because by transforming others, we also gain additional holiness and come closer to God. When we, my friends, reach out to people and bring them close to God, we ourselves become closer to God. This goes back to the conduit or the water hose analogy I gave a couple of uh, mornings back with respect to um, uh, uh, praying for others. When we pray for others, we became like a, like a water hose connected to a spigot. We are bringing blessing down to them, but we're the conduit, so therefore we ourselves get wet and therefore receive the same bracha we're playing, praying for them. So it says here, let us not feel inadequate or incapable of affecting such transformations, for we do not work unaided. Rachel said, may God add for me another son. We are merely God's instruments. It is really, really he who lovingly welcomes his estranged children home. Yosef was successful in transforming others because he himself had become perfectly righteous. So in other words, as we... Uh, grow closer to Hashem, we become more effective in that mission. Now, one more thing about Yosef, uh, as we're concluding our Aliyah today. Uh, it says here in um, verse 25, And it was when Rachel had given birth to Yosef, Jacob said to Laban, Grant me leave that I may go to my place in my own land. Give me my wives and my children from whom I have served you, and I will go, for you are aware of my service, and I labored for you. Now, the question becomes, why he's got one more son to be born. Why is it now that he's requesting to go back home, to go confront, as it were, Esau? Why doesn't he wait for Benjamin? He knows prophetically he's going to have 12 sons. What's the, what's the answer? And this comes from um, the Talmud, Baba Basra 123b. Uh, Baba Basra 123b. It says... After Yosef was born, Yaakov told Laban that he wanted to return to Eretz Israel. Why did he wait until the birth of, of the son of Levi? Or excuse me, uh, Slika. Why did he wait until the birth of the son to leave? Yaakov and his children would be facing Esau, his children when he returned. And he knew that only the children of Yosef could defeat Esau. We see this in the Pasuk of Obadiah the prophet, which says, The house of Yaakov will be a fire. The house of Yosef a flame, right? The house of Yaakov a, a fire. The house of Yosef a flame, you know, like, like a lapid. And the house of Esau straw. The house of Yosef will destroy the house of Esau. So only Yosef can defeat Esau. Esau. And finally, my friends, before I leave you this morning, the final 
passage talks about uh, Hashem has blessed me on account of you from verse 27. It says, but Laban said to him, if you have found favor, if I have found favor in your eyes, I have learned by divination that Hashem has blessed me on account of you. The scholars bring down in Barakot 42a, uh, just a paraphrase here, that when we welcome a scholar into our homes, we invite blessing into our homes. And... Uh, if the home is deserving, it basically says here um, that it says we see from the apostle that a household is blessed when a God-fearing person is there. Laban recognizes about Yaakov. Apostle Melakim says that the wicked king Achav called Ovadiah, who was in charge of his house, and then the apostle seems to switch the topic, saying that Ovadiah feared Hashem very much. What is the connection between the two statements? This is what happened. Ovadiah was in charge of Yaakov. Akov's house, but Akov's house was not blessed. Akov called Ovadiah and accused him of not being God-fearing because if Ovadiah had been God-fearing, the house would have been blessed. The apostle goes on to tell us that Akov was wrong. Ovadiah feared Hashem very much, but Akov was so wicked that his house was not fit for a blessing. Sanhedrin 39b. I just want to bring that up because it reminds me about when Yeshua was sending out his Talmudim and he said to them in Matthew chapter 10, if the house is deserving, let your blessing rest upon it. And if not, wipe the dust off your feet. So we, as followers of Mashiach, through His grace, we are righteous, not on our own account, but because of His grace and mercy and righteousness for us. As a result, wherever we go, because of His grace, not because of our you know, smartness or goodness or whatever, we leave a blessing of shalom. So today... Be an embassy of the kingdom of heaven and let your shalom rest upon those who are needing that rest. Let your peace be found wherever you go. Let your light shine today. And uh, I hope you have a blessed, wonderful, and awesome day. I am about, with my precious wife, to take off and go see some lovely HGOs in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Very excited about that. And uh, if you are watching from somewhere in the United States and you have a little small group that watches us, let us know about it. And uh, with God's help, we'll come see you too. We want to see everybody and love on them and tell them how awesome they are and encourage them. So you be blessed. Uh, with God's help, I will be broadcasting uh, tomorrow morning from Tulsa, Oklahoma for our Aliyah Day. And uh, until then, may you be richly blessed. We'll see all of you tomorrow. Baruch Hashem.